I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Science says, touch your toes. Science says, rub your belly. Science says, pat your head. Science says, whatever I want it to. It's high noon. For Tuesday, May 18th, 2021, follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also occasionally find me on Gab at I'm your moderator and the merch site is www.cancelcotour.com. If you have not yet done so and you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Please take two minutes and go drop a five-star rating or write a nice little review. That stuff actually does help. And I appreciate it. It makes me feel good. Also, ultimately, if you agree with the things I'm saying and you think that they are an effective explanation of what's going on right now, share them with people. People are becoming extremely open to the possibility that something bad actually did happen. And so it's important to put information in front of them and give them a way to understand what's going on. Now, I know some people are worried that it's going to offend the feelings of the commies you might share it with. If they are redeemable commies, they'll get through it. Today is the 118th day of Barack Obama's third term, as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth, Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You figured out everything that was wrong with the world and then intentionally put it all into practice so that your fantasy land could become real. And we're all seeing how that worked out. A warm Tuesday. High noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hey, redeemable commies, we see you. And we want you back in America as fast as possible. So I know that the things that I am about to say will not make you immediately happy because they're going to strike at the very heart of the things you believe. The thing is, the things you believe are wrong. And worse than that, they're stupid and evil. And they are derived from a dishonest and corrupt media and a culture that has been infiltrated by Marxism. And the wrong part, being wrong, that's something that all of us have been and are. You can't escape that. You're going to be wrong about things in life. 
But you don't have to be stupid and you don't have to be evil. And that's where we draw the line. Unfortunately, a lot of the things you're wrong about, you believe are part of your identity, that they make up who you are as a person. But they don't. They're just beliefs that you accidentally adopted. You literally acquired these ideas by mistake. You were forced into believing them because you were told you were a bad person if you didn't. But that's not true. They made you feel that way so that you would profess belief in these things. And now that you've adopted them into your identity, you hold on to them for dear life. But trust me, you can just let them go. And then everything will start to make sense and you will start to feel much better. So just do it, Kami. Just listen to the show. Get on through it. I don't even know you. So it certainly can't be personal. But I am going to make fun of you. Because right now, you are protecting evil in our society. Real evil. Not the kind that gets made up by commie college professors. Real, genuine evil. World historic evil. There's a direct line from all of the collectivist ideology massacres that took place in the 20th century to where we are right now. It's even the same people involved. It's the same ideology. Don't mistake it. Communism, socialism, fascism, Nazism are all the same. They're collectivist ideologies. The theories describe different aspects of that, but the key point is the collectivism. You look at people as groups, then you figure out which ones are good and which ones are evil, which one's needs should be served at the expense of everyone else. And that's where we are. It's never ending. It is a constant quest for power and domination. There's no nice version of it. So reject it fully. And you can start right now. Get through a couple of weeks of high noon. You're going to be okay. Your ego will not die. But you will become American again. And that's what we all want. We want you back. We want you in America. Not in this communist utopia that is never going to form around you. So. There are some people in the world that wake up to this. I hear everything you're saying, and I, I do think, though, uh, there needs to be some clarity that there are some pockets of the country that may not be ready. Uh, I'm here in Washington. Uh, in many ways, I'm here doing Know Your Value interviews, but I am working with a team here, and there is one person on the team who is not vaccinated. I'm wearing a mask around that person. What Mika forgot to mention right there is that the reason she's wearing a mask around that person is so she can make that person feel bad for not getting the vaccine. She's literally calling out one person from this group of people she's working with and blaming that person for people having to wear masks in that setting. That is basically 
just bullying. And exactly what clarity does she need? We don't need more clarity. Masks don't work. You're admitting that your vaccine doesn't work and you're still scared. And you don't care about following the science in either case whatsoever. You know, it is really, if you want to follow the science, then there are times you need to still wear the mask. Which times would those be? What does the science say about a vaccinated person wearing a mask? There's no science that says unvaccinated people should wear masks. There's no science anywhere supporting masking. There certainly is no science supporting a vaccinated person masking. And of course, what she's saying is in direct opposition to what the CDC has said. Now, I don't trust the CDC, but I especially don't trust them in the opposite direction. When the CDC made their new recommendations, I didn't think, oh, thank goodness for new science. I thought, oh, well, the CDC is clearly making a political decision here because Anthony Fauci is screwed and Rochelle Walensky is exposing herself as a complete idiot. And the Biden administration is getting absolutely run over. Only a third of the country has been vaccinated. They can say that 44% or whatever it is of adults have been vaccinated, but they're telling us that kids need to be vaccinated too. And they're telling us that 90% of the population needs to be vaccinated for herd immunity. But somehow, I guess we have herd immunity anyway. And that's where I think it gets really confusing as we try and move forward as a country and put this pandemic behind us. The other thing is this pandemic is not behind us globally. And that means that we could run into problems again. You never know. If you're looking at the science and you're looking at breakthrough cases and you're looking at other strains, it's not completely behind us. And that's why I think this can be very confusing. Once again, where's the science? Rochelle Walensky addressed breakthrough cases and variants and all of that. Yes, she did say it was totally scary two days before, but now she says it's not a problem. So what exactly is the science that you're looking at, Mika? The science to you just means that you're scared of certain things happening. And then if you ask the science, the science says, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that could happen. And then you believe that the science confirms your fear. And so then you have two choices. You can either admit that you are scared of everything, including your own shadow. Or that you're using the science wrong. Because if we're going to apply Mika's standard, that means that every time you get in the car, you are literally risking your life and not following the science. Because on Mika's construction of this, if you are ever presented with danger in your life, you have to do everything possible to eliminate that danger just on the rare minute chance that something goes wrong. And no one lives their lives that way. If they do live their lives that way, they're basically just huddled up in a corner like Molly Jong Fast, editor of the Daily Beast. 
who is still scared after a year and a half and still huddled up in her corner and still worshiping Andrew Cuomo. But what she's really admitting to is that she believed every single worst case scenario that they have ever said. And she's not willing to let go of any of those things, even though none of them are true. And the people telling her those things have been provably lying the entire time. And she's also just using her mask as a tool to generate shame to coerce another person into injecting themselves with an experimental vaccine, in quotes, technology. An experimental gene therapy that is only available on an emergency use authorization and will not actually be FDA approved for a couple more years. She is fully on board with the idea that children and toddlers and infants should be getting a vaccine for a disease that cannot kill them. And for all intents and purposes, does not actually exist in our society. And we're told to be very, very scared about India's cases. But do we have a bunch of Indians just flying in to the United States all the time, bringing COVID with them? No, we don't. Also, India has opened up usage of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in treating COVID and their cases have gone dramatically down. And everyone's mad at them for doing it. Because the point here is not to save lives. The point is to keep everyone scared so everyone stays locked down and no one stands up for themselves ever. The masks are for show. They have always been for show. And if you don't believe me, take it from the oracle of science, Nazi doctor Anthony Fauci. How has it changed what you do when you wear a mask? Excuse me, how does... How has it changed what you do? How has it changed your mask wearing practices? Well, you know, George, I'm obviously careful because, I mean, I'm a physician and a healthcare provider. Wait, what? Anthony Fauci is a physician and a healthcare provider? That's just not true. He has worked in the medical bureaucracy for almost 40 years. Anthony Fauci directs funding for the creation of viruses and sells vaccines that he's involved with the creation of. Anthony Fauci's actual job is running a bureaucracy. He's not a physician and a healthcare provider. Also, He's not an example to anyone except child-brained communists who actually need to have an icon of everything so that they know what to do without thinking. I am now much more comfortable in, in people seeing me indoors without a mask. I mean, before the CDC made the recommendation change, I didn't want to look like I was giving mixed signals. Got that? He didn't want anybody to get confused about for instance, whether or not the vaccine works. Even though telling people that they need to wear a mask after they've been fully vaccinated is a mixed signal because you're telling them to get a vaccine 
but you're showing them that the vaccine doesn't do anything. And yesterday, Joe Biden told us that masks and vaccines have the same effectiveness. But being a fully vaccinated person, the chances of my getting infected in an indoor setting is extremely low. Remember what I just said about Mika? Anthony Fauci is illustrating that perfectly here. His chances of getting infected in an indoor setting is extremely low. His chances are basically zero. It is not a threat in any way whatsoever. And he knows that. But can it happen? Yes. So now the way he says it, people like Mika Brzezinski take that and they say, well, it could still happen. And I've already subscribed to the view that anytime you say better safe than sorry to me, I'm just going to go with that and then not do the thing that could present some minute chance of danger. This is why Anthony Fauci is not someone who cares about science. Okay. He could describe these things in the actual probabilities that they have recorded from their data. He could do that. He could describe the mechanisms on how something might happen and talk about how rare it is that that thing could happen. But he chooses not to. And he chooses not to because he would rather leave these little fear crumbs everywhere along the trail so that the Mika Brzezinski's of the world and the Maskies of the world and all other rock dumb communists can come around and eat the little fear crumbs. And that's the reason why in indoor settings now, I feel comfortable about not wearing a mask because I'm fully man, I'm fully vaccinated. It's honestly just so weird that Anthony Fauci thinks the entire nation is going to see what he does and then do the same thing. Everyone's just going to imitate his behavior. And if they see him inside without a mask on, fully vaccinated, they might think it's okay to take their mask off, even when fully vaccinated. Oh, whoops. Now they changed the recommendation. So now it is okay. And now he's starting to feel comfortable, but he understands that he still has to model good behavior for everyone, except that he hasn't done that. There are more than enough pictures of Anthony Fauci just not wearing a mask taking off masks when he thinks the cameras are off, putting masks on when he thinks the cameras are on. Anthony Fauci is a fraud and a liar, and it's obvious all the time. He makes it more obvious every time he opens his mouth. Now let's go to Arizona, where the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors were making their last stand yesterday. In response to Karen Fan's letter pointing out major problems, with things like ballot chain of custody, deleted databases, etc. They responded with a 13-page letter yesterday addressing some of those issues. And the way they address the issues are matters of verifiable fact. And I don't have all the facts or the understanding yet to refute each one of those. But I have talked to people who are able to. And that letter is a lot of nothing. There will actually be a hearing today that will respond to that. And subpoenas are probably headed their way 
in the near future, either today or tomorrow, because the long and short of the meeting at the end of it, they basically said, and I, I say basically, they said that they would not be complying with anything else, no more requests for information or guidance, and no more appearances until a court compels them to do so. And let's remember, of course, that they are already at this point because the court continues compelling the county to hand over everything related to their election. We can make fun of the name Cyber Ninjas all we want. At the end of the day, the Arizona State Senate is doing this audit on behalf of the people of Arizona. And what this audit will find is that not only did Donald Trump win Arizona, but Republicans all over the state also won. Arizona is going to be completely flipped. And like I said yesterday, State Senator Wendy Rogers is already out there talking about how every county in the country with these machines should be fully, completely audited, forensically audited. And that's the direction we're going. Steve Bannon, for the last two days on War Room, has been speaking directly to Mitch McConnell and saying, hey, Mitch, why are you allowing the Senate business to go forward? Why are we even dealing with all of these ridiculous Democrat bills like H.R. 1? While you know there are illegitimate senators who are now seated in the United States Senate, Mark Kelly. That's one, Arizona. He's probably going to be the first one gone. Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Georgia. Neither one of them won. There should have never been a runoff election. And without these machines, without widespread election fraud, there never would have been one. That's going to come out. And then we have Alex Padilla out of California who took Kamala Harris's seat. Well, Kamala Harris didn't win and isn't the legitimate vice president. So Alex Padilla can't be senator. But the point I'm making is that the push, the goal, keeps increasing to the point where it needs to be, which is everywhere, everything everywhere needs to be forensically audited. As I have said from November 4th, 2020 until now, that narrative is beginning to take hold. When it does, that is when we get the big action. One place we're not going to be getting big action is in Michigan, where Judge Kevin Elsenheimer just ruled that the claims of Bill Bailey against Antrim County, Michigan are moot. He decided on some grounds, <laughs> which he explains and don't really explain it honestly, he decided that Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson's recount do, in fact, constitute an audit. And so there's nothing else that the court could potentially give to Bill Bailey, the plaintiff, and therefore the rest of it doesn't matter. Now, it'll be appealed, but it sounded to me like what the judge was saying is this is not my thing. The state legislature needs to do this. And maybe that's legitimate or maybe it's a cop out. But either way, it sounds to me like what the people need to do 
is start putting pressure on the legislature of Michigan and the people who represent the citizens of Michigan in Michigan are going to have to take it upon themselves to actually have the courage to get an audit in the works the same way the Arizona Senate did. It's on them now. So that's who the pressure needs to go on. Because it sounds to me, and I could be wrong about this, but it sounds to me like this DiPerno case is dead in the water, at least for now. And that's unfortunate, but hey, this is the kind of stuff that has happened the entire time. We know what the truth is. We keep pushing forward. Matthew DiPerno's evidence alone shows rampant fraud. We don't need a judge to decide the right way about something that happened five months ago, whether or not that was an audit for the truth to hold. Okay. He's not saying, and he actually made quite clear that he's not saying that there is no proof of corruption or corruptibility. He's not, he's not saying that he's just saying that the court is not in a position to grant further relief to bill Bailey. And therefore the case is moot. You can make it that whatever you want. I haven't fully formed my opinion. I'm just telling you what happened. But again, in Arizona, the Board of Supervisors responded with a letter. I'm not going to address the factual claims in the middle of the letter. That's like uh, number two through four, I think, or two through five in the sections of the letter. And you can find that letter on the Info stream at t.me slash I'm your moderator. I'm going to read some of the pieces of the letter and then briefly address the stuff. But what I want you to take away is the tone of this letter and how it's written and realize that the media in Arizona, this guy, Bram Resnick, who seems to be like the media shill for this entire thing. The media got the letter before Senate President Karen Fan got it. And that's not good. That's not proper process right there. So here's the letter. Senate President Fan, we write in response to your May 12th, 2021 letter. We also write in response to the May 12th social media post from the Twitter account run by you or your designees, which accused Maricopa County of, quote, deleting a directory full of databases from the 2020 election cycle days before the election equipment was delivered to the audit, end quote, and went on to accuse the county of spoliation of evidence. These accusations are false, defamatory and beneath the dignity of the Senate. They are an insult to the dedicated public servants in the Maricopa County Elections Department and Office of the Recorder who work incredibly long hours conducting the county's elections with integrity and honor. So you kind of get a sense of where this thing is going right up front. They're sad because the letter offends the very hardworking people. And no, it doesn't. It says someone made errors. It's either an error or it's malfeasance, but someone did this. They're not actually blaming the county election workers at all. That's Stephen Riker, I think is how you say his name, and the Board of Supervisors shifting that claim off onto them. And you'll see over and over throughout this that they use these emotionally driven terms like defamatory and beneath the dignity of the Senate. 
They are trying to make the world at large believe that this audit is a sham. It isn't a sham. So the first response, your accusation that Maricopa County deleted data is false. Now, I have talked to one of the people who is actually working on this and the recovery of this deleted information. And that's not true. This is what I was told. If you look at what, and you can read the response so you have some reference to what exactly this answer is in regards to. If you look at what goes outside disk bounds, it is the E drive, and what was deleted was the D drive. Also, why were they running the server the day they shut it down? Correct, the metadata would change if the file was changed. If you have a file in your computer and don't touch it, the metadata won't change just by turning off the computer. So you can see that their explanation about that database is incorrect. But they give a complex and detailed answer, which actually makes it seem like they know what they're talking about. And it's written with the sort of voice of authority that will tell people who don't know that they are actually right, especially if you have already adopted the belief that the Arizona audit is a sham. You'll expect that everything they do is comically stupid because that's the narrative that's been built by people like Rachel Maddow. And apparently the, this board of supervisors believes that's enough for them too. good luck, commies. They then go on to talk about how the auditors are incompetent and not familiar with any of the election processes, election laws, or what anything is actually supposed to be. But it sounds to me like it's actually this guy who doesn't know what he's talking about because one of the points he brings up is about the chain of custody documentation for the ballots. But that's not actually, and he has an answer, but it's not actually directed at the chain of custody of the ballots. He is entirely focused on the chain of custody from when they left the board of supervisors to when they got to the Memorial Coliseum. But that's not the documentation that they're talking about. They're talking about the actual chain of custody documentation for the absentee ballots, the ones that come in the mail or get dropped in the drop boxes. And that's the chain of custody documentation that the auditors don't have access to. Why is that? Well, it may be because it doesn't exist. And that's exactly what's happened in Georgia. A new report out today from Georgia Star News. Georgia still has not produced chain of custody records for 333,000 absentee vote by mail ballots deposited in drop boxes in the 2020 election. Got that? 330,000 ballots in a state that was settled by less than 12,000 votes, we're told. Six months after the November 3rd, 2020 presidential election, officials at the state and county level in Georgia have failed to produce chain of custody records for more than 330,000 absentee vote by mail ballots deposited in drop boxes located around the state for that election. Joe Biden was certified as the victor of Georgia in its 16 electoral college votes by a margin of 11,599 votes or less than 0.25% of the 5 million votes cast in the November 3rd, 2020 presidential election in Georgia. According to the Georgia Secretary of State's office, 
1.3 million of those votes were cast as absentee vote by mail ballots. Based on polling conducted by John McLaughlin and Associates, 700,000 of those absentee vote by mail ballots were sent via regular mail and 600,000 were deposited in the estimated 300 drop boxes located around the state and were manually picked up and transported by election workers to the local county registrar for subsequent counting. As of May 17th, only 59 of Georgia's 159 counties have provided ballot transfer form data to the Georgia Star News. The number of absentee by mail ballots delivered to registrars in those 159 counties total only 266,492 or 44.4% of the estimated 600,000 absentee vote by mail ballots deposited in drop boxes and delivered to county registrars and counted in the Georgia's in Georgia's 2020 presidential election. More than six months after the November 3rd, 2020 election in Georgia, there are no chain of custody documents for 333,511 or 55.6% of the estimated 600,000 absentee vote by mail ballots deposited in drop boxes and delivered to county registrars and counted in Georgia's 2020 presidential election. According to Georgia Election Code Emergency Rule 183.114.0.8 through .14. Jesus, I shouldn't have read that. Promulgated by the Georgia State Election Board in July 2020, but not codified by the state legislature at the time as the Georgia Constitution requires. Each of Georgia's 159 counties is responsible for documenting the transfer of every batch of absentee ballots picked up at drop boxes and delivered to the county election offices with ballot transfer forms. The forms are required to be signed and dated with time of pickup by the collection team upon pickup and then signed and dated with Time of delivery by the registrar or designee upon receipt and accepted. The office of Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger told Breitbart News in December that it was not the responsibility of the Secretary of State to obtain, review, and make these ballot transfer forms available to the public. Instead, it is the responsibility of each county. From Monday, December 7th through Friday, December 11th, the Georgia Star News issued open records requests to all 159 counties in order to obtain copies of the ballot transfer forms. The forms were required as a part of the hastily crafted election code emergency rule promulgated by the Georgia State Election Board in July 2020, but not codified by the state legislature as the Georgia Constitution requires. And what they're talking about right there is the consent decree made between Stacey Abrams, the human election fraud machine, and Brad Raffensperger, the enormous pussy. The article goes on to list a bunch of the stats individually by county, but this is how it wraps up. As the Star News reported on March 4th, DeKalb County told the Star News that they were unsure if responsive documents existed. That means they're not sure if the chain of custody documentation for those ballots from those Zuckerberg drop boxes even exists. Then on December 17th, DeKalb County provided documents that were not responsive to the open records request. Instead of providing ballot transfer forms that provided chain of custody records for the movement of ballots from drop boxes to registrars, they provided documents that showed the movement of boxes of absentee ballots from registrars to centralized tabulation areas. And this is exactly parallel to what we're seeing in Arizona. They have the documentation for when they moved the ballots to the Senate's auditors, but they're not supplying the original documentation from where those ballots were picked up by a representative of the state or county or elections officials 
And then what happened to them after that while they were being transported? And that's what they need to prove that these absentee ballots that they accepted ostensibly from drop boxes were actually ballots that voters dropped in the boxes on November 3rd or prior. That's what they don't have. And that's what proves that these ballots are legitimate in the first place. None of the ballots that don't have chain of custody documentation from those drop boxes should be counted in the election. They were counted. That's the issue. The remaining 71 counties in Georgia either did not use drop boxes in the November 3rd, 2020 election or have said they will make the records available upon payment of a processing fee. So you can see right there one of the many ways that Georgia's election problems are not even close to over 333,000 ballots that they are not able to get chain of custody documentation for because that documentation might simply not exist. But regardless, whoever might have it is holding it back from freedom of information requests. Back to Arizona, and I'm going to jump over the next few claims because, again, I don't know which side is factually correct right now. But this is number three, page 10 in their letter. We cannot produce what we do not possess, and we do not possess additional passwords. In your letter, you state that Maricopa County has refused to provide passwords necessary to access vote tabulation devices. However, as we have previously told you, we have produced every password in our custody and control. You, however, accuse us of lying. No, she didn't. She said they haven't handed over those passwords and they're the ones that are supposed to have them. She did not accuse them of lying. You state that we could not have conducted our forensic audits without additional passwords and that it's strange credulity to suggest that our contract with Dominion Voting Systems does not allow us to obtain additional proprietary passwords belonging to Dominion. The contract is a public record. You could have requested it. Even a cursory review would show there is no contractual provision granting the county the ability to acquire Dominion's proprietary passwords. Instead, you call us liars and insult us when a simple public records request would have helped you avoid such indecent conduct. Again, the emotional words. It's so silly. Next, let's consider the county's two separate forensic audits conducted in February of this year. You suggest that the Dominion proprietary password would have been necessary to conduct those audits. You are correct. It was. The forensic audit firms that the county hired, Pro-VNV and SLI Compliance, are both accredited by the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission as voting system testing laboratories. Because of that accredited status, signifying that these firms are specialists who have expertise with voting systems and understand how to audit them, Dominion Voting Systems provides Pro-VNV and SLI compliance with the necessary passwords to audit their machines. Now, again, these are not auditors, as they just admit. These are laboratories, okay? So there's a distinction there to be made. Your chosen auditors, cyber ninjas, are certainly many things, but accredited by the EAC is not one of them. And thank goodness, because the EAC is as responsible for all of this as anyone. Regardless, we cannot give you a password that we do not possess any more than we can give you the formula for Coca-Cola. We do not have it. We have no legal right to acquire it. And so we cannot give it to you. And again, the tone of this is just so ridiculous. We will not provide your auditors access to the county's routers because doing so would compromise the security of the county's network, which in turn could compromise the security of sensitive 
protected and critical data. Once again, the sort of thing that you see everywhere, which is the dilution of accountability and responsibility. Everything is always someone else's fault. This is what happens when you create really complex systems. There is always someone else to blame, which intentionally makes getting answers like the ones they're trying to get very difficult. This is what Jen Psaki does all the time in press conferences when she doesn't want to answer a question. Questions about immigration, she'll talk about their talking points. Anything else, now you got to talk to DHS. Or you got to talk to the CDC about the masks. Jen Psaki can't describe the science, but she can tell a journalist that Rochelle Walensky was on TV all yesterday and you should have watched that. That's not answering a question. That's saying it's someone else's responsibility and you're not going to go on record with the answer. And those routers will prove to be a problem for them. Number five, we will not attend your meeting on May 18th, 2021. I'll be watching this meeting today. It's at 4 p.m. Eastern, and I'll put a link up in the info stream. In your letter, you invite us to attend a meeting at the Arizona State Capitol on Tuesday, May 18th, 2021 at 1 p.m., and you request that we bring election department officials who would have knowledge of our elections procedures. We will not be attending. We will not be responding to any additional inquiries from your auditors. In auditors, he writes in quotes. Their failure to understand basic election processes is an indication that you didn't get the best people to perform in your political theater. We have wasted enough county resources. People's tax dollars are real. Your auditors are not. Number six, your audit, in quotes, is harming all of us, and we ask you to end it. Finally, we express our united view that your audit, no matter what your intentions were in the beginning, has become a spectacle that is harming all of us. Our state has become a laughingstock. That's because of you guys. Worse, this audit is encouraging our citizens to distrust elections, which weakens our democratic republic. Your auditors, in quotes, began the audit, in quotes, unaware that using blue pens on ballots could harm them and apparently would have distributed blue pens to those conducting the recount of ballots had a reporter not informed them. It has gone downhill from there. Your audit, which you once said was intended to increase voters' confidence in our electoral process, has devolved into a circus. You are using purple lights and spinning tables. You are hunting for bamboo. These are not things that serious auditors of elections do. You are photographing ballots contrary to the laws that the Senate helped enact, and you are sending those images to unidentified places and people. You have repeatedly lost control of your Twitter account, which has tweeted things that appear to be the rantings of a petulant child, not the serious statements of a serious audit. None of this is inspiring confidence. None of this will cause our citizens to trust elections. In fact, it is having the opposite result. You certainly must recognize that things are not going well at the Coliseum. You must also know that the county's election was free and fair and that our elections department did an outstanding job conducting it. And that's why we're not going to help you do anything anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately, this has become a partisan issue and it should not be one. It is time to make a choice to defend the Constitution and the Republic. As county officials, we come from different political parties, but we stand united together to defend the Constitution and the Republic in our opposition to the big lie. We ask everyone to join us in standing for the truth. The November 3rd, 2020 general election was free and fair and conducted by the Elections Department with integrity and honor. 
Regardless of your intentions, when you decided to subpoena our equipment and ballots, this cannot really be what you envisioned. You, Senate President Karen Fan, are the only one with the power to immediately end it. We implore you to recognize the obvious truth. Your auditors are in way over their heads. They do not have the experience necessary to conduct an audit of an election. They do not know the laws, nor the procedures, nor the best practices. It is inevitable that they will arrive at questionable conclusions. All conclusions are questionable, pretty much, unless it's science, right? <laughs> it is time to end this for the good of the Senate, for the good of the country, and for the good of the democratic institutions that define us as Americans. Man, I am inspired. This is almost as inspiring as Dr. Fauci's racism speech that I played yesterday. So we'll see what they have to say today at the hearing that none of the board of supervisors are going to attend because they have decided that anything further from them is going to have to be compelled by the court. And I think they're going to have a hard time with that. Now let's go to Pennsylvania. This is the national pulse. Natalie winters today breaking PA County judge says Republican ballots cannot be scanned. A Pennsylvania county is experiencing issues scanning Republican ballots during local elections and primary races, according to officials. Chris Varney, judge of elections, says they were initially under the impression that it was a problem with all ballots, but then determined it was only a problem with Republican ballots. Local news reported the election official was unaware how many other precincts were experiencing the same issue, but noted it was occurring in numerous locations across Fayette County. The Fayette County Bureau of Elections confirmed the reports of precincts across the county rendered unable to scan ballots. The solution provided by Fayette County officials was to collect ballots from voters and store them in the back of voting machines, but not to scan any of them to ensure the process was handled in a fair manner. Oh, that sounds like a great solution. It's a good thing that people noticed this. Otherwise, I imagine that all of these ballots would have been adjudicated in the machines, which means... That whoever is handling the ballots gets to decide how all the voters voted. This happened all around the country. Does any commie know that? Of course not. Do they have any idea what adjudication is? Of course not. Do they have any idea what the holes in the adjudication process are that allow for rampant fraud? Of course not. And that's the point. The commies don't actually understand any of this. And it seems that our elections have gotten no better in the last six months. And who knows? Maybe they've gotten even more brazen. But I'm actually really interested to see what happens with this story and what it's going to affect. Because if this problem persists and Pennsylvania is not able to get a certifiable result from the voting that's happening there right now, that's going to present them a whole lot of problems. Now, I meant to talk about this yesterday, but ran out of time. This article is actually from Saturday in the New York Times. Secret sharers, the hidden ties between private spies and journalists. A booming renegade private intelligence industry is increasingly shaping and misshaping the news. Now, if you're shocked to see that headline in the New York Times, you're not the only one. 
But remember, whenever the media is doing stuff that makes the media look bad, they are always trying to cover up something far, far worse and make people think that they aren't the problem. This is by Barry Meyer. Some journalists are happy to knock on the doors of strangers. I was never one of them, but Christopher Steele, the ex-British spy behind the infamous Trump dossier, left me no choice. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Mr. Steele had been hired by an investigative firm called Fusion GPS to gather dirt about Donald Trump in Russia. The firm's founders, two former Wall Street Journal reporters, made it clear they would not talk to me for a book I was writing about the business of private intelligence. So on an early summer morning in 2019, I arrived at Mr. Steele's home in Farnham, a picturesque English village. In photographs, the retired MI6 agent was always dressed impeccably in business suits, his graying hair freshly coiffed. When he opened his door, he was wearing plaid boxer shorts and a blue T-shirt and had a serious case of bedhead. I can't talk today, he said. It's my birthday. At the time, those involved with the dossier were intent on controlling its narrative and eager to capitalize on their fame. Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritsch, the founders of Fusion GPS, wrote a book about the dossier that became a bestseller. Mr. Steele sold his life rights to a Hollywood studio owned by George Clooney. When a guest at a private dinner party hosted by Vanity Fair asked him for his business card, he thought it was a fan who wanted his autograph, so he picked up his place card and signed it. Now the glow has faded from both the dossier and its promoters. Hey, New York Times, you were one of its promoters. Russia, as Mr. Steele asserted, did try to influence the 2016 election. But many of the dossier's most explosive claims, like a salacious P-tape featuring Mr. Trump or a supposed meeting in Prague between Michael Cohen, Mr. Trump's former attorney, and Russian operatives, have never materialized or have been proved false. In fact, it's all like that. The founders of Alpha Bank, a major Russian financial institution, are suing Fusion GPS, claiming the firm libeled them. Fusion has denied the claims. Plans for a film based on Mr. Steele's adventures appear dead. Beneath the dossier's journey from media obsession to slush pile lies a broader and more troubling story. Today, private spying has boomed into a renegade billion-dollar industry, one that is increasingly invading our privacy, profiting from deception, and manipulating the news. Now, this is something that I have been talking about for probably a year and definitely pretty often since at least whenever Hunter Biden's laptop was said to be Russian disinformation. Remember, 50 former intelligence officials. Who do you think they're talking about right here? A private industry where intelligence officials profit off spreading false stories or leaking information. And that's who those people are. That's what they do. That is the most important difference between that letter from 50 former intelligence officials pretending that Hunter Biden's laptop was fake. And now we find out, of course, that it's real and always was. And the letter we got the other day from 120 military officials talking about Joe Biden's dementia and the country's descent into Marxism. On one hand, you have 50 people trying to influence politics, lie to the media, and profit off of it. And on the other hand, you just have 120 retired generals and admirals who are standing up for what's right and their country and their oath. Big law firms in New York and London are clamoring for services of firms like Black Cube, an Israeli company that worked for Harvey Weinstein. 
Dictators are using private spies as freelance intelligence agents. And off-the-shelf technology is making it easier for them to monitor cell phones and hack emails. Over the past decade, spies for hire have become more emboldened, just as their power to influence events has become more pervasive. While I was examining the private intelligence business, it became clear that I needed to look at another profession, the one where my career had been spent, journalism. Reporters and private investigators long have had a symbiotic relationship that is hidden from the public. Hired spies feed journalists story tips or documents and use reporters to plant stories benefiting a client without leaving their fingerprints behind. The information they peddle is often sensational. It can also be impossible to verify or be untrue. When Mr. Trump, an ex-MI6 agent, and two former reporters were thrown into the mix, the ingredients were in place for a media debacle of epic proportions. And in a news business that is fragmented and hyperpartisan, a similar fiasco may lie dead ahead. I can't believe the New York Times allowed it to be printed that the media, the news business, is fragmented and hyperpartisan. That's them. The private intelligence business is a home to a scattershot of figures, ex-government spies, former law enforcement officials, and others. As the newspaper industry has shrunk, a growing number of reporters like Mr. Simpson and Mr. Fritch have joined their ranks. The two men who did not respond to my request for comment started Fusion GPS a decade ago. There, they worked for nonprofits, hedge funds, and companies they might have investigated during their Wall Street Journal careers. In 2015, Mr. Fritz sent an email to a former colleague at the newspaper congratulating him and others there on winning a Pulitzer Prize for articles that exposed how doctors were draining Medicare. First, a big congrats on the big P. Has Rupert had you on his yacht yet? Mr. Fritz wrote to the colleague, John Carreru, referring to the paper's owner, Rupert Murdoch. Mr. Fritch then explained that his firm was examining companies that did blood and other medical tests and that he was eager to get Mr. Carreru's impression of an industry whistleblower. I caught him lying to me about something and just wanted to reach out and get your read of this dude, Mr. Fritch wrote, according to copies of the emails reviewed by the New York Times. As it happened, Mr. Carreru had just started investigating Theranos, a high-flying startup that claimed to have developed a revolutionary blood testing technology. Once Theranos caught wind of Mr. Carreru's interest, its lawyers hired Fusion GPS. Mr. Fritch acknowledged in a follow-up email that he was working on the company's behalf, and he told Mr. Carreru that he was urging Theranos to let him interview its founder, Elizabeth Holmes. But as weeks passed and the reporter pressed to interview Ms. Holmes and another top Theranos executive with whom she was suspected of having an affair, Mr. Fritch's tone turned combative and condescending. I think you are playing this a lot harder than it needs to play, Mr. Fritch wrote. I get the tactic and have used it myself, but usually only after I had the Abu Ghraib photos in my hand, so to speak. Their exchange ended quickly, and while the journal reporter continued to investigate Theranos, Mr. Fritch started a different inquiry, one aimed at Mr. Carreru, who would eventually expose flaws in the startup's technology and the lengths it went to to hide them. So basically, you've got Theranos hiring Fritch to smear Carreru. To monitor reporters, Fusion GPS used an outside contractor who submitted open record requests to government agencies asking for inquiries made by journalists for public documents. In mid-2015, emails show Mr. Fritch asked the contractor about ways to frame requests for inquiries by Mr. Carreru for Theranos Records, quote, so it doesn't look like we are targeting him specifically. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? These journalists complain all the time about how they're being targeted. And then they will totally go to bat for a company like Fusion GPS 
so long as they're harming Donald Trump. I would like to not mention Kareru by name, Mr. Fritch wrote. The reason is obvious. If we name him and he sees that, he'll know who you are working for, with, etc. When the contractor rejected one proposal about how to disguise their interest, Mr. Fritch suggested another approach. To mask it, let's also include the New York Times, he said. Amazing, isn't it? Mr. Simpson loved holding court with reporters, regaling them with war stories and presenting himself as a journalistic wise man. At a conference of investigative journalists in 2016, he said he and Mr. Fritch had started fusion to continue their work as reporters who righted wrongs. I like to call it journalism for rent, he said. Fusion GPS, like its competitors, belong to a wider web of enablers, lawyers, public relations executives, and crisis management consultants who serve the wealthy, the powerful, and the controversial. For their part, private intelligence firms take on jobs that others don't know how to do or don't want to get caught doing. Information gathered by private investigators is often laundered through public relations firms, which then shop the material to journalists. Jules Kroll who created the modern-day private intelligence industry in the 1970s, broke that mold by leaking information directly to reporters. Mr. Simpson took it a step further. He sold Fusion GPS to clients by emphasizing his connections at major media outlets and assured journalists that he was really still one of them. People who have never been a reporter don't understand the challenges of printing what you know, right? Because you can't just say what you know. You have to say how you know, and you have to prove it. Mr. Simpson remarked at the 2016 conference, when you're a spy, you really don't have to get into a lot of that stuff. Fusion GPS also mined a field that other private intelligence firms avoided, political opposition research. And when Mr. Trump emerged in 2016 as the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination, lawyers for Hillary Clinton's campaign hired Fusion to dig into ties between Mr. Trump and Russia. Got that? Again, this is critical. People like me have been saying this for three years because that's when I realized it was true. People like Dan Bongino and a lot of reporters on the right have been saying this since 2016 because it was always true. Okay, I didn't know it because I was ignorant and I was still a redeemable communist at the point of the November 2016 election. And as soon as that happened, that's when I started realizing, oh, hey, all these people that are telling me what I should think and what's right, they're all lying. So I better figure out what's right real fast. And that began my journey of how I got to this point right now. But a lot of people knew this was wrong from the beginning. It is actually true that Hillary Clinton hired Fusion GPS to get Christopher Steele to write that bullshit dossier. All of it is disproven. But nevertheless, that constituted the entire basis for the Trump-Russia investigation and our actual intelligence community who was still working in the intelligence community at that time, including the FBI, the CIA, that's James Comey, that's James Clapper, Andrew McCabe, Rod Rosenstein, all of these people. And... Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. In the fall of 2016, Fusion GPS invited selected reporters from The Times, The New Yorker, and other organizations to meet Steele in Washington and receive briefings on what he had uncovered about the Trump campaign in the Kremlin. Isn't that incredible? Selected reporters got to go hear directly 
from Mr. Steele so that they could report the things that he made up. As is often the case in the world of private intelligence, the meetings came with a catch. If news organizations wrote about the dossier, they had to agree not to disclose that Fusion GPS and the former British agent were the sources of the material. Oh, my God. You wonder how things get this way, right? You think nothing is ever going to get fixed. This is how dirty this is. It takes a lot of cleaning. Every day we clean up a little bit more. Okay. It's happening. It can't happen fast because this is how deep it goes. Mr. Steele was described to journalists as having played a pivotal role in breaking huge cases, including the 2006 poisoning of Alexander uh, Litvinenko, a former KGB agent and the FBI's investigation into bribery at FIFA soccer's governing body. And when speaking about Mr. Trump and Russia, he came across as calm, understated and confident, according to the reporters who attended the meetings. Oh, big surprise there. They probably got fooled by his British accent. Mr. Steele said his information about Mr. Trump and his associates had been gathered by an unnamed, highly skilled operative with Kremlin connections referred to as his collector. This would be the primary subsource in the memos. The ex-agent referred to his collector's informants using code names like Source A and Source B. It was easy for many journalists to believe that Mr. Trump would do anything to win, even given his stance with President Vladimir Putin, collude with Russia. And while Mr. Steele said that his information needed to be confirmed, he left little doubt that he was right. Now, let's go through this one more time. It's easy for journalists to believe that Mr. Trump would do anything to win. Why? Because that is the narrative those same journalists created. There is nothing inherent about Donald Trump and his behavior in 2016 that said he would be willing to do anything to win. The narratives that support that break down immediately upon review. One of them was that Donald Trump said he would accept the results of the election if he won. Because he knew what was going on in the 2016 election, just like he knew what was going on in the 2018 election, and just like he knew what was going on in the 2020 election, which is just another way to know that this stuff was planned for. There was never any doubt that this sort of election malfeasance was happening. Okay, but that's what constituted this narrative. Journalists were ready to believe that Mr. Trump would do anything, including collude with Russia, based on nothing other than that they had already accepted the narrative that he had a massive ego, couldn't tolerate losing, and didn't care about the country. And while Mr. Steele said that his information needed to be confirmed, he left little doubt that he was right. Therefore, the reporters just believed him. And we're talking about reporters again who were told that if they report on this, they're not allowed to connect Mr. Steele to it and they're not allowed to connect Fusion GPS, right? Why weren't they allowed to connect those people? Because they were hired by Hillary Clinton? He described Trump as a kind of Manchurian candidate, recalled one reporter who met him. And there you have it. Christopher Steele 
describe Trump in a certain way. And so now that's who Donald Trump is to all of these reporters forever. Mr. Steele had talents. And as with many private spies, his past was his big selling point. But his purported achievements were hard to examine since they were by nature secretive. So there you go. You can't figure out what his background is. So a background check is probably pointless. I guess we're just going to have to believe him. That's what every smart reporter would do. The best friend of Mr. Litvinenko, the murdered ex-KGB agent, said neither he nor Mr. Litvinenko's wife had heard of Mr. Steele. Neither had a former Times reporter, Alan Cowell, who wrote a book about the Litvinenko case. Ken Bensinger, a BuzzFeed reporter who wrote a book about the FIFA scandal, said that after speaking with Mr. Steele, he concluded that Mr. Steele really didn't know much about it. (laughs) But it's good enough to go with for these commie reporters because they're commies. And all that matters is taking down Trump. Investigative journalists don't normally rely on court records, corporate documents, or other tangible pieces of evidence. Well, that's interesting. But the dossier took them down a very different path. One into the shadowlands of intelligence, a realm where documents don't exist and where reporters often can't independently confirm what their sources are saying. After BuzzFeed posted the contents of the dossier in early 2017, countless articles, television shows, books, tweets and blog posts about it appeared. Then the music started to stop, started to stop. That's interesting. (laughs) God, write better. Robert S. Mueller, the third who led a Justice Department inquiry into possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Moscow, barely mentioned the dossier in his 2019 report. Now, why was that? Oh, it's because it's all bullshit. Got it. A separate review that year by the Inspector General of the Justice Department, Michael E. Horowitz, also threw cold water on the dossier and raised the possibility that Russian agents might have fed disinformation to Mr. Steele's sources, a suggestion the former British agent rejected. Even though his primary subsource was known by the FBI to be a Russian intelligence asset as early as 2009. And that man is Igor Danchenko. So all of the substance in the Steele dossier was provided by a man thought to be a Russian spy. That is what we were told we had to take as serious, substantial information of how bad a guy Donald Trump was. Over dinner in Moscow in 2019, Natalia Veselnitskaya, a Russian lawyer who met with Donald Trump Jr. at Trump Tower during the 2016 campaign, offered to take on the matter. Miss Veselnitskaya had worked alongside Mr. Simpson when she represented a Russian-owned real estate firm called uh, Prevazon Holdings and said she regarded him as a skilled investigator. As for Mr. Steele and the dossier, she had nothing but contempt. If you take this fake stuff for real, then you just have to be brave enough to believe to completely dismiss all your special services, all your intelligence staff, she said rapidly through an interpreter. She suggested how odd it was that all those people in agencies, quote, were never able to find out what that talented person found out without ever leaving his room, end quote. Miss Veselnitskaya was embroiled in her own legal drama. The Justice Department had indicted her in connection with her work for Prevazon, a charge she denied. Still, she raised an issue that reporters who embraced the dossier had blown past. How did Christopher Steele know more about Donald Trump and Russia than the CIA or MI6? Well, that's because he made it up. 
Isn't that interesting, though, how they tried to take away her credibility? But admit that still she raised an important issue. The dossier's latest blow came last year when the identity of Mr. Steele's collector was revealed. He turned out to be Russian-born lawyer Igor Danchenko, who now lived in the United States. Mr. Danchenko, like others in the private intelligence business, had stumbled into it after other pursuits failed. His contacts within Russia appeared to be not Kremlin A-listers, but instead childhood friends, college buddies, or drinking pals. In 2017, Mr. Danchenko claimed to the FBI during a secret interview that Mr. Steele had, quote, misstated the information and had, quote, exaggerated its reliability. But after that interview was released in 2020, Mr. Danchenko flip-flopped. He told one newspaper that he stood by the dossier. He told another newspaper that he wasn't so sure about it. By then, a few reporters who had written about the dossier had backed away from it. Some people have wanted to maintain that the dossier is checking out when, as far as I can tell, it hasn't, said Michael Isakoff of Yahoo News. He was in the minority. He was also the guy that exposed the dossier. When Eric Wemple of The Washington Post wrote a series of columns about the media infatuation with the dossier, most journalists he contacted either defended their work or ignored his inquiries. In an article for Rolling Stone, Matt Taibbi cast the media's handling of the dossier as a replay of a press disaster, the reporting before the Persian Gulf War, which claimed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Quote, the WMD affair showed what happened when we don't require sources to show us evidence, when we let political actors use the press to confirm their own assertions. Are we never going to own up to this one? The short answer is no. To learn from the dossier episode, news organizations would have to examine their ties to private intelligence agents, including why they so often granted them anonymity. But as long as the media allows private spies to set the rules, journalists and the public will continue to lose. Now, think last year about the claims that Donald Trump was allowing the Russians to place bounties on American soldiers in Afghanistan. That was completely made up. Hunter Biden laptop being Russian disinformation, completely made up. And you can see this pretty much every time unnamed sources say something was done by the Russians. And this works so well because all the commies, Obamis and Romneys think that the Russians are responsible for them having to put up with Donald Trump. In a recent book, Luke Harding, an investigative reporter at The Guardian, described how Mr. Steele had dispatched his collector to surreptitiously approach a real estate broker, Sergey Milian, who was a uh, peripheral figure in the Trump-Russia saga. Milian spoke at length and privately to this person, believing him or her to be trustworthy, a kindred soul, Mr. Harding wrote. But the trouble for Mr. Harding, who is close to both Mr. Steele and Mr. Simpson, was that he wrote those lines before the release of the FBI interview of Mr. Danchenko. In the interview, the collector said that he and Mr. Millian might have spoken briefly over the phone, but the two had never met. Mr. Harding did not respond for requests for comment. So that's the end of the article. And this article is adapted from a forthcoming book by Barry Meyer called Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies, which might actually be really interesting. I'm amazed the New York Times printed this, honestly, because... This is one of those sorts of things that should make you doubt every single bit of the reporting that has ever happened about Donald Trump. This is the basis for all of the Trump Russia stuff. Okay, 
Mueller doesn't happen. None of it happens without this thing happening. And this all happened to cover up Hillary Clinton's emails. Understand that. These people are corrupt as hell, all of them. And the media is right out front with that. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. And Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack, I'm Your Moderator.substack.com, where you can donate, or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon. Back out on the rain. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!